Well, grace to you and peace be multiplied through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's good to see some of you here that I recognize, and the rest of you are friends that I haven't met yet. I'm not sure how far back Brother John wants me to go in my introduction of myself. My grandfather was raised Amish. He never joined the church, and one reason is because he wanted to go into mission work, which was not available, I guess, at that time. And so he went to Africa as a builder. And while he was in Ethiopia, he met my grandmother who was teaching school there. She was a Mennonite from Indiana. And they fell in love and got married there in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and took their honeymoon in Yemen. My father was born into that family and other siblings of his. And so he spent some time there in Africa. And then they came back to the home farm in Big Valley, not too far from here, and close to Lewistown. And they went to a Mennonite church there for a little while, but there were no youth in that small church. And so my father and his brother began to run with the Brethren in Christ youth group in the valley. And eventually the whole family went to the Brethren in Christ church there in Belleville. My dad married a Brethren in Christ girl, and then I came on the scene. And I have a brother and two sisters. I'm the oldest. And my parents moved to northwestern Ontario when I was four. And they were involved in Mennonite mission work with First Nations young people, a residential boarding school called Poplar Hill. And I grew up there for seven years from the time that I was four to I was 11. It was a very formative experience for me to be in a community setting where maybe 50 staff and 50 students were working together for a common cause. We moved back home to Big Valley when I was 11. We went to the Brethren in Christ Church again. Um, After I graduated from high school, I went to a small conservative holiness Bible college called Penview Bible Institute for four years where I majored in missionary studies. And my intention was to go to the field. Following that, then I went to pastor a small church in Perry County. Anybody ever hear of Perry County? Okay, wow, I'm surprised. Um, (laughs) um, There's not much there. Most everybody in Perry County travels over into other counties for work. But uh, I was pastoring a small Brethren in Christ church there, and I was the pastor for 10 years as a single man. And then I married Heather Martin. We moved to the Penns Creek area. And then after several years, moved to the Shippensburg area where we are now. We have three children. Our oldest daughter is four. Our son is two. And then we have another daughter who is 10 months. And I'm very sorry that they cannot be here this evening. You would be really delighted to to meet them. As I considered the opportunity and the privilege of being with you young people this evening, I asked myself, What do I wish for you? What are my hopes for you? And my hope really is that you would be successful. I want you to succeed. I want you to do well. And what I mean by succeed, by success, is that as you go through life, you live a life that is well-pleasing to God. I think that's your desire. I really do. That's why you're here. And I commend you for that. As I was thinking about what it would be like to cross paths with you again in another 10 years or 20 years, let's say in the year 2030 or 2040, uh, how wonderful it would be if you could come up to me and and say, hey, Brandon, I kind of remember you a little bit. I'm doing even better now than I was doing way back there in 2020. I'm walking with the Lord. I'm closer to Jesus And I'm just so happy with the relationship that he and I have together. That's my desire for you. And there are a lot of things that go into making that happen and making that a reality. I'm sure that you want to follow God in such a way that you have as few regrets as possible. And so thinking of that end in view... One of those main ingredients for your success, for our success, that I would like to address this evening is that little reality, but often difficult reality, 
of submission. Submission. The title of the message this evening is simply, Submit to Succeed. Submit to Succeed. I want you to be successful in all of the best spiritual aspects of that word. But you can never become truly successful until you are truly submissive. You see, there's one thing that, at least one thing, I think that I know about spiritual young people, and I consider all of you here spiritual young people, unless you want to prove me otherwise. I I really do believe that you are spiritually minded and focused. And one of the things that spiritual young people grapple with, and all young people, what spiritual young people grapple with is the issue, I believe, of authority. Many of you are in this age bracket of 16 to 26, what some have called the critical decade. Because this is the decade in which you are making choices and decisions that will shape and change and impact your life for the rest of your life. The choices that you're making right now in relation to friends and finances and church and a companion and what you're going to do with your life These will shape so much of the rest of your life. And I think what a lot of spiritual young people, most all, really probably all young people wrestle with, is how do I relate to the authorities in my life? I'm I'm getting older. I'm now 18, 19, 20. My relationship with my parents is changing. My relationship with my peers Maybe even with my spiritual leaders, my pastor, my deacon. It's, it's changing. I'm trying to figure out what it means for me to be my own person. To make my own decisions. To have my own convictions. And so it raises a lot of questions that young people grapple with. I'd like us to go to Matthew 8 this evening for our text. Matthew chapter 8, it's a well-known story. And really, I believe it illustrates the interconnectedness of faith and submission. Of all people, the character of note here in this account is a soldier. A soldier who demonstrates both the faith and that interconnectedness of submission. You see, true faith is submissive, and true submission really does require faith. It doesn't matter how old you get to be. As we go through life, submission always requires the element of faith. In Matthew 8, Jesus has just finished giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's come down from the mountain. Great multitudes are following him. He has healed a leper. And in verse 5, it says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. My parents deserve so much of the honor, the credit, for raising me with a sensitivity, a concern, a desire to be a man 
of honor, a man who would be respectful, a man who would be yielded, submitted to authority. When I was 13 years old, my parents took me to a a week-long seminar where the speaker there very strongly emphasized the importance of coming under authority. And I remember as he was talking in that seminar, he was talking about the various um, types of authority that we find ourselves facing. He talked about the fact that there are at least four areas of authority. Obviously, we have parents or guardians, people who are overseeing our lives, maybe a step-parent, a father or mother. We have church leaders, bishops, deacons, Sunday school teachers. Perhaps we have school teachers or employers, somebody who is our boss at work somebody that we are answerable to in our employment, perhaps a principal or a foreman on the job site. And then there are government leaders. Of course, the president, the vice president, the governor of the state, lieutenant governor, senators and representatives, all the way down to county commissioners and township supervisors. Lots of authorities out there. Uh, Lots of people to come under, (laughs) to submit to, to yield to. And I'm sure that sometimes we're tempted to ask the question, where does all this authority come from? And is all this authority legitimate? There's tons of authority out there. And besides all that, when do I get to be an authority? That's what I care about. I'm always getting bossed around. When do I get to be the one that gets to say so on this, that, and the other? Your time's coming, okay? Hold on. We're all familiar with Romans 13, and really that is the basis, I believe, for helping us understand where this thing of authority comes from. Paul states very clearly there, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. That includes the church authorities, the civil authorities, the employer, the school teacher, the principal. He goes on to say, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Very sobering, but very clear words. Indeed. My main thought this evening, young people, is simply this. Your success is tied to your submission. Your success, as I have defined it, in pleasing God, in living a life that is honoring to Him, it is tied to your submission. And you may think that since I'm a middle-aged man, I've got this thing of submission all figured out. I I can come tonight with all of the answers. And I'm sorry to say I can't. (laughs) I'm still figuring it out. At 41 years of age, I'm still trying to figure out, is it really okay for me to go six miles over the speed limit? Because I know the authorities are usually okay with that. (laughs) Which I did coming here tonight. Don't tell anybody. This past summer, in our church brotherhood, we had discussions about the mask, as perhaps you had in your brotherhoods. And after we decided to start meeting again, we were very glad to be back together again as as you were. We decided to sit as families, separated every other bench to help mitigate some of the possible virus issues that were out there. And there were some of our church family who chose to wear masks to church, but by and large, most did not. Somewhere in July, we had a brother's meeting, and one of the brothers came, and he felt very strongly that we ought to be obeying the governor's mandate. And we all ought to be masked in church. 
And we are not um, coming under this civil requirement. There was discussion back and forth among the brothers, and no decision was made. Pretty much the issue died. It went back to what we had been doing, and, and that was let each family decide for themselves what they want to do with this issue. For myself, I didn't think it was a, an important situation. I feel very sensitive about covering my face. I think it's very important for people to see us and that we do express much of who we are through our faces. And so I just find it very hard to fellowship with veiled faces. So we came to the first Saturday in, in August, and all of a sudden there's this church phone chain going around on a Saturday evening with an announcement from our pastor saying that he would like everyone coming to church tomorrow morning to wear a mask, except for singing and except for those that would be speaking. Well, I'll have to confess to you, I got a little hot under the collar. I could not believe that this was happening. For one thing, this is a Saturday evening. No chance for the brotherhood to get together and talk about this. And the pastor just decided that we're all going to do this. I, I was beside myself. I was ready to call him right then and there and find out what's going on. And my very good wife said to me, she said, why don't you wait till tomorrow morning and sleep on it and think about it, and then if you still want to call, call him tomorrow morning before church. Well, I didn't sleep very well that night. <laughs> and my collar wasn't any cooler really the next morning, although I think I probably modified my words more since I had a night to toss and turn on it. So I called the pastor, called Brother Harvey, and um, I expressed to him how wrong I felt it was, but I did want to hear him out as to how he came up with this decision, what he was expecting of us. If our family came up, came, came to church without wearing masks, would we be considered lawbreakers or rebellious? Would we be met at the door with masks? Would we be turned away if we didn't have any or didn't want to wear them? I, I just wanted to clarify what's going on. And, and really, I did want to be submissive. That is my desire. I want to submit. But this didn't feel good. I didn't like it one little bit. Brother Harvey is a very caring person. He's very low-key, and he received all my questions and my consternation calmly. And he explained the things that he was thinking, and somewhere in the conversation I admitted that we are all just trying to find our way. We are. We've never faced anything like this before, and so we're just, we are trying to find our way, and he, he definitely agreed to that. He said, no, he wouldn't think of us as rebellious if we came without them. He expected a large number probably wouldn't wear them anyway. Feel free to come as you wish. Very gracious. So our family marched in without masks, and we were in the minority. Most everyone was wearing them. After the service, I was talking with a good friend of mine, a brother there in the church, and he was one of the many that chose not to wear it during church, but would put it on both before and after. And so he put his on and said, hey, what do you think of it? I said, I don't like it. And uh, I told him I called Brother Harvey that morning. He said, I don't, I don't think you should have done that. I don't think you should have called the pastor. Oh, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't have. And uh, the next day or so, I, I talked with another brother or so about it. And it's not that I was trying to gather support from my side, okay? I just wanted to figure out what, what is going on. I thought we make decisions as a brotherhood here and, Here's our pastor, he's just making this out of whole cloth and, you know, what, what's happening? 
here's the assumption I was operating under. I knew there were one or two brothers in our church that were very strong about this subject and felt like we should do it and had to do it. My assumption was that Brother Harvey got pressure from them to make that decision. And over the next day or two, as I talked around a bit, I found out that that assumption was false. Neither of those brothers had said anything to our pastor. Oh. Furthermore, Brother Harvey spent a good bit of Saturday researching the the issue himself. And he really did feel like this was something we ought to consider doing. The government wasn't asking us not to meet together. They were simply asking people to try to mitigate the situation. And then Monday evening, I read a devotional book that had this verse as the heading from Philippians 2, 14 to 15. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault. Ooh, boy. I was under conviction. The author, Dennis Kinlaw, emphasizes that living blameless, pure, and without fault is available for us now in this world. Ouch. So on Tuesday, I tried to talk to our pastor face-to-face, but he was out of state. He had forgotten his phone charger, and his phone went dead. I couldn't connect with him. On Wednesday... I was finally able to to get a hold of him. And I said, Brother Harvey, I said, you know, I was wrong for the way I responded. And I'm sorry for how I made it hard for you to lead. Will you please forgive me? That's very hard to say. But I was clearly in the wrong. And he very graciously forgave me. And you know, one of the verses that kept going over and over in mind in the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And I told Brother Harvey, I said, I will wear the mask as long as you want me to. I will submit to that. And that that evening, Wednesday evening, we we marched off to prayer meeting and we put on our masks. And over the next number of weeks, I kept watching Brother Harvey. Because I said to myself, as soon as Brother Harvey takes his off, mine's coming off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was about a month ago, I think, we had some sort of a Sunday evening service. And uh, the place was pretty full and we came in and I looked up front, and Brother Harvey didn't have his mask on. And so after church, I went up to him. I said, uh, hey, brother, I I noticed you're not wearing your mask. He said, oh, yeah. He said, I'm wearing it. I'm wearing it in my pocket. (laughs) I said, well, I'm going to wear mine there, too. (laughs) And I don't think either of us have uh, worn a mask to church since, but we had a good laugh together. I give you that story to, to help you realize that no matter where we are in life, we are always going to be grappling with this issue of authority. Uh, where is my place? Where shall I be? What, how shall I respond to things that seem irrational, unnecessary, unfair, not right. And I'm not proud of that account, but it illustrates the struggles that we do face. And it also illustrates the importance of always being on our guard. We can have the best desires in the world to be always yielded, always honoring, always submitted But then there's a curveball, and we find ourselves having to to address those new issues. And so my desire is that you'll, you'll do everything you can to allow the Spirit of God to cultivate a sense of respect 
a sense of honor, a sense of submission in your life. Because I really believe that if, if you do that, even if you occasionally get off track and fall in the ditch, and your actions don't line up with the attitude you want to have, your attitude will help you get back on track again. You see, I never lost my desire to be in submission to my spiritual authorities. I always had that desire. And I, I stepped out of bounds. I went out of the way I should have gone in. And because I made such a big deal about it, I felt like I personally had to wear that thing until my spiritual authority put his away. If I hadn't made such a big deal about it, I probably wouldn't have gone to those lengths. And maybe that's not right. Maybe I, maybe I need a change of mind. I'm, I'm open to counsel. But what I'm saying is, if we cultivate the right attitude, there may be times when our actions are like that little wheel on the shopping cart that makes that thing keep wanting to swing one way or the other. You know, we know where we want to go, and our right attitude will help us get back on track. Does that make sense? Cultivating the Spirit of Christ. So, I want you to have my passion for submission, but I'm hopeful that you're going to have a lot better track record than I do, okay? (laughs) In our text, the centurion recognized his success through authority, only came because he was submitted to a higher authority. It's always interested me how he's talked, how he came to Jesus, and he said that he too was a man under authority. And then he goes on to talk about how he tells people to do this, that, and the other, and they do it. <laughs> he's covering both ends of the spectrum, but he's saying the only reason I can say the things that I say and they happen is because I, too, am where I need to be in the chain of command. Success through authority only comes by submission to authority. That's what the centurion was saying. That's what he was recognizing in Jesus. And this attitude of respect fed a faith that caused Jesus to be amazed. Is it possible for us to have a faith that impresses Jesus? That sounds audacious. But I really believe it's possible from what we see here in our text. I think that we can cultivate a proper attitude toward those in authority in such a way that it also builds our faith. You see, we can only be well-pleasing to God through whatever authority He gives us if we are submitting to whatever authority He has placed over us. You may have a certain amount of authority, But if you're not responding properly to those who are over you, it's impossible for us to be well-pleasing to God. Success through authority only comes by submission to authority. And there's a lot of individuals out there who love their individuality and are flaunting their individualism. It's one of the idols of the American culture. I am my own person. I have my own identity. I make my own decisions. And it really does tend to influence us, I think, more than we realize. That's why submission is a dirty word in so many parts of this nation. It's considered unnecessary unkind, wrong. But you know, if you refuse to join a chain of command, you're as useless as a chain link that refuses to be part of a chain.
What good is one chain link that will not be part of a chain? If you have a link and I have a link, but we refuse to link up, what value is that? What can a single link do by itself? And of course, Satan's goal is to convince you that your acts of submission to unreasonable authorities, and there's lots of them out there, right? So he says, that your submission to those authorities will forge the chains of a slave. But of course he lies because he's always a liar. Submission is not the chains of a slave. Rather, it forges the chains of a swing that allows us to be free in the purposes of God and to enjoy all that He wants to do for us and through us. By which we experience joy, peace, and fulfillment. That is God's purpose for the chain of command in the home, in the church, in the place of employment, in society. And because we've been so influenced by this thing of individualism and individuality, when it comes to submitting, we don't need wisdom so much as we need willingness. Let me just be candid with you. I'm really tired of people who are out there doing church by themselves because they can do it so much better than everyone else. That got old 10 years ago. We need to link up, brothers and sisters. And I'm talking to you, especially you young people. You're making decisions. Where are you going to link up? What chain of command will you attach yourself to? What chain of command will you yield to? We don't need to pray, please God, give me the wisdom to submit. If you don't have the willingness, it won't do you any good. And it's hard because of the culture in which we find ourselves. We're afraid that we're going to lose our identity in a larger group, and then where will I be? <laughs> I won't be able to make any impressions. I won't be able to have any influence. I'll just get swallowed up in this giant Anabaptist group. Yeah. Nonsense. It's only as we give ourselves to a larger group of people, as we yield to a larger group, that we can accomplish larger things. The people who are going out there and doing things all by themselves aren't the ones who are accomplishing the things that need to be done in the kingdom, brothers and sisters. And so it's time for us to be willing to lose our identities, our hopes, our dreams in order to have them realized in ways we never knew were possible. Remember, your success is tied to your submission. The second and last story that I'd like to share with you this evening has a happier ending to it. (laughs) And in this case, I did a better job by God's help, in expressing submission. I'd like to share with you the story of the girl who eventually, finally became my wife. It's a long story. (laughs) And the man who caused most of the problems is here tonight. (laughs) this was a bit of a struggle for me because I've never shared my courtship story with my father-in-law in in the congregation and I'm talking about submission and so I talked to my father-in-law I said I really want to be honoring and respectful is it okay if I share this he said absolutely you can say anything you want wherever you want whenever you want so I began pastoring in 2003. I was uh, 
24, and pastored for, for 10 years. In 2007, I was at a friend's wedding in Illinois, a girl that I had gone to Bible school with, a four-year Bible college, and lo and behold, she had a friend named Heather that was also in, was in her bridal party. Um, my family and I were friends of, of Keezy, the other girl was getting married, and so we were out to Illinois for that wedding. And somebody said to me, they said, you ought to check out the Martin girl in the wedding party. So I checked out the Martin girl in the wedding party. <laughs> like, oh, she's nice, but, you know. I was there. I was in my lapel coat. I had my long tie on. That's how I dressed as I pastored. That's how I dressed when I went to Bible college. Uh, the tie was actually a requirement unless an individual had, a man had a conviction against it. And uh, so I was in a very different setting. That was in July. In November of that year, of 2007, my parents put together what they called an Anabaptist Youth Weekend in Big Valley at my home church where I'd grown up at the Brethren in Christ Church there. And they asked, they, they were looking around for somebody to do Anabaptist history, and somebody said, well, there's a certain John D. They think he could do a pretty good job. Oh, okay, sure, we'll call him up. And um, I had done a message on the head covering, so they asked me to come and preach. There were some other speakers in to talk about various ordinances of the Anabaptists. And so it was a Saturday-Sunday situation. Heather was at Faith Builders at the time as a student, and somehow she found out about it, and she and a number of her friends came down for part of that weekend. Sunday afternoon, late afternoon, uh, it was in between sessions. People were getting ready for supper. I was walking around taking pictures of people, and I took a picture of this girl that was very happily cutting up fruit. And I tell people that's when the spark struck. Here's a girl that's happy serving. I'm happy when I'm served. No, wait. Um, (laughs) She wasn't even part of our church. But she was serving and she was happily happily doing that. And that's when I noticed the Martin girl. Whoa. The Martin girl. But you know, our worlds were very different. Long tie, lapel coat, and Shippensburg Christian Fellowship girl. Hmm. So I thought about her for a while, talked to my parents. They said, well, you really ought to talk to her parents. Okay, yeah, I guess I should. So um, January or so of 2008, I went to Shippensburg and met with Heather's parents, John and Patricia. And John mentioned several things that he was concerned about. Uh, He was concerned about the long tie. He was concerned about my association with the Brethren in Christ, because I was pastoring a Brethren in Christ church. What am I supposed to do about that? And... He was concerned about my views on non-resistance. And I'll be candid with you, I was a little squishy at the time, okay? Didn't believe in going to the military, but I wasn't sure where I stood on self-defense, okay? I was a little uncertain about that. I just hadn't landed. And so, graciously, John said, you're welcome to write to Heather if you'd like and get to know her. So I went home and I thought about it, and I thought, Nah, can't work. The distance is too great. I just can't happen. Now, our circles did not converge much at all. There was not much overlap between Pleasant Valley Brethren in Christ Church, where I was, and Shippensburg Christian Fellowship, where she was. But we did cross paths twice in the year uh, after that, in 2008 and 2009. And in June of 2009, I was overseeing a small youth camp at Roxbury, Roxbury Campgrounds. And through a series of events, Heather ended up there visiting my sister because my sister had been to Bible school at Shippensburg Christian Fellowship. And my mom said, hey, doesn't Heather live close to here? Why don't you invite her over? And, you know, oh, wow, okay, they live pretty close, like 10 minutes away only. And the first person she saw when she walked into the campground was me. She had no idea I was there. I was like, whoa, okay, he's here. And, uh, well, hey, you guys live so close. Why don't you invite your mom over? So Patricia came over, and the moms got to talking. And they realized that we were still quite interested, though we had no, you know, interaction, no writing, no anything. So what to do? You know, it's a struggle. 
so our families talked. There was some visiting. And John said to my parents, he said, Brandon and Heather can write, and if it progresses to courtship, I will give my blessing. And if I'm off on any of this, Dad, feel free to clarify. So, <laughs> so we started writing, then calling, emailing. Then Thanksgiving, I took her to my parents' place to meet with the family and Christmas and some back and forth. And we're still not dating. We're, we're still not officially courting. And there was a problem. And this was what I think Dad hadn't foreseen. I think what Dad was expecting was we would write, and we'd either find out that, yes, the differences are too great, or we'd figure out a way to make it work. And I would do all the things I needed to do, and we could go on with courtship. The unforeseen issue was this little thing called emotions. An emotional attachment. And we got emotionally attached. Oh, we got so close. We talked on the phone. We emailed. You know, just lots of connection. But her dad didn't feel free to give us his blessing for courtship. Now, to me, it felt like he had gone back on his word. Because what I had heard back in July was... If this proceeds to courtship, I'll give my blessing. Well, it sure felt like it was proceeding to courtship to me, and there was no blessing on the horizon. (laughs) And everybody said, Heather's the girl for you. They thought she was great. They thought that we were a pair. And they thought this thing should go forward. But there was one man standing in the way. And he was a big man. He was a scary man but he's also a kind man. And because my parents had raised me to seriously consider the blessing of the girl's father, I could not bring myself to cross that boundary. I could not proceed in wooing Heather without John's permission. And John couldn't give it. So we were stuck. In January 25 of 2010, Heather and I cried our eyes out and decided that we had to break off whatever relationship we had, which sent me into a tailspin. And I I went on a 40-day fast from solid food, trying to figure out what is God saying in all of this. I, I thought I knew where this thing was going. I thought I knew how he was leading And now everything has fallen apart. At the end of those 40 days, I I contacted Heather, I emailed her, and we decided to try just to be friends. You ever try to be just friends? Don't try it. It doesn't doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) We tried that for, I don't know, a year maybe. We'd realize, oh, we're, we're texting too much emailing too much, let's back off. And uh, in one of our last conversations, we, we joked with each other and we said, you know, maybe someday we'll end up in the same nursing home. You know, Heather will be a widow, I'll be a widower, and we'll finally get married in our wheelchairs. <laughs> and you know, every single person in my life was telling me, This is the girl for you. And most every person was telling me, John D. is being unreasonable. But I wanted to submit. And I highly valued the Father's blessing. That was very important to me. And I'm not going to stand here and say that it always, always, always has to be, but 99.9% of the time, you better have the Father's blessing. Okay. And so, in fall of 2011, we decided we had to cut it off altogether. There's no more texting, no more emailing, no more, you know, when will we see you again? Nothing. It's over. And I kept giving that up to God, trying to sense what he was saying. 
I even pursued another relationship or two. Just, you know, am I, I think I'm over this. I think I'm... But there's something else in this story that makes it turn out better. <laughs> and that is, John D. actually liked me. Now, Heather really liked me, but John liked me. And he thought that I had a future. He was, he was tracking my trajectory. Yes, I was in the Brethren in Christ. Yes, I had been a little squishy on non-resistance. And yes, I wore a lapel with a long tie. But he was watching the choices that I was making. And this is what he did that was above and beyond. Certainly not anything I deserve. But two or three times a year, he would stay in touch. And he'd email me and say, hey, uh, let's get together at the Newville Diner and, and chat. Newville Diner is about halfway between where both of us were. I was in Perry County. He's in uh, Shippensburg. And um, so we'd go and we'd chat, typically a bowl of chili. Um, you know, he'd get one, I'd get one, and we'd talk. And he would talk about ministry and life. And, and uh, of course, I'd bring up unhappinesses and broken promises. And, you know, you said, but you didn't do. And... and um, But he chose to maintain that, that contact. During the last part of my years at the church there, I was doing a lot of wrestling and growing in the understanding of two kingdoms, the history of the Brethren in Christ, the value of the Anabaptist Foundation. And I started to cast vision for my church to consider leaving the Brethren in Christ. I'm not bashing the brother in Christ at all. There's a lot of fine people there. But I felt like I had taken the church as far as I could in that context. And that if we were going to become more healthy and grow stronger, we needed to become a, a separate people. Um, a lot of the, the church people had separated themselves in many ways from the broader group as it was. And so I just thought it would be best for us to, to make that official. And so went through um, nine months of sharing this, presenting this, came down to a church vote, and the church vote was, we're going to stay brother in Christ. Ooh, that, really, that really set me back, because I realized that I didn't have a long future there anymore. And I love the church people, and I still have a great connection with them. I still go back every now and then to, to, pat, to, uh, to preach. But I realized I was going to be moving on. And so, that was tough. I'd been there 10 years. I didn't know what was next. It was dark. Uh, I was going to be moving back home with my parents in Big Valley at 34 years of age after having been on my own for 10 years. How do you work the submission in that? That doesn't feel very good. <laughs> I've been my own man for 10 years. Well, I, I set it up. I was leaving the end of September. I decided I'd go out and do a sugar beet harvest in North Dakota for a month, go out and visit friends in Colorado Springs for a couple weeks, uh, go on out to Washington State and fly with some German Baptist brothers down to Mexico and do some ABT scouting for possible future teams. And so pretty well all my fall was booked out. And then I had a job lined up driving uh, over the road tractor trailer for a fellow out of Beaver Springs starting in January. Near to the end of my time at the church, John contacted me and said, hey, we ought to get together. And I thought, yeah, sure, why not? Another bowl of chili. What can it hurt? Feeling a little bitter. Well, the way it worked out, his schedule was busy, mine was busy. We didn't get together till just six days before I was going to leave the church and head west. So we met at Newville, and... This time, you know, I was gracious before, and I shared my, my struggles and all. This time, I had nothing to lose. I just, I just put it all out there. And he really was hoping that maybe something could work with Heather and me. And I said, look, I said, you know, if anything is going to happen between us, I'm going to need to have your blessing, not only for courtship, but for marriage up front, right away. No more playing around, no more hearts broken, 
I just got to have it all if anything's going to happen. I don't think anything's going to happen. If anything happens, that's the way it's got to be. So we left, left on good terms. Um, in the midst of all this, I'm packing up the parsonage, you know, the house that's provided for me as a pastor. My mom and sisters are there helping me pack all my stuff. My dad's helping me move stuff to the farm. And um, in my, the last six years I was there, I drove school bus. I was a salaried pastor. I was paid part-time. And then the other part was driving school bus for the public school district, which I enjoyed. Um, I tell people I got a real education. I drove uh, grades 6 through 12. And I enjoyed my students most of the time, except when there were, of course, behavior issues. Anyway, after getting back from the bus in the morning, once or twice a week, I would go to a little restaurant in town where there was a U-shaped counter, and I could meet the locals. Uh, You name it. Just different guys were there. It was just a great way to meet the guys and hear what's happening in the area. I was at that restaurant Wednesday morning, the day after my meeting with with, uh, John, and I got the call from him. I was like, oh, step out, take this call. He said, yeah, he said, hey, uh, I got some of the brothers from church together last night. Brothers from church? What in the world? What is this? It's just me and him. He's calling brothers from church about my relationship with Heather, possible relationship. Wow, okay, well, okay. And he said, uh, yeah, talk to the brothers, and they all feel pretty positive about it. Well, that's good. Uh, If the brothers have to be involved, glad to feel positive. No, I wasn't that way. But he encouraged me to to, um, call Heather or to connect with her. I said, I appreciate that. I I said, uh, and he said that he would give his his blessing. He was going to bless us for uh, for courtship. And um, I said, well, um, we talked some more and, and, uh, I said, thank you, for, thank you for giving your approval. And he said, oh, no, I'm not just giving you my approval. I'm giving you my blessing. That's powerful. Now, I have to admit, I played hard to catch a little bit. I said, well, let me talk with my parents, and I'll get back with you about what we decide. So I talked with them. Uh, next day, I called back to, to him, and he said, uh, I said, I'd like, to, I'd like to court Heather in uh, pursuit of marriage. He said, well, I think she'd like to hear from you. <clears throat> I had three days left. I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I was going to be gone. So I called Heather, and I said, uh, hey, I said, I only have one night open for a date, and that's tomorrow night, Friday night, because Saturday night is the church farewell. Sunday night I'm up at my parents, and then I'm gone uh, Monday morning. She said, well, I was going to visit some friend, a friend of mine in Lancaster, but I told her that Something might happen, so I just kept it open in case. (laughs) So we had a date. Uh, She was there for the farewell Saturday night. She was there Sunday morning for the last message I preached there, my farewell message. Um, We traveled around, met some family, and then I headed out west Monday morning. And um, while I was out west, I realized that we weren't going to have much time together. It did work out that she could fly out there for about a week in Colorado Springs because I was visiting a friend of mine, he and his family, and uh, I knew I was going to Mexico, and anything can happen when you go to Mexico, right? Drug cartel, violence, and all this. And uh, we'd only been officially dating two months or something like that, but I wanted to tell her I loved her. Now, I'm a student of Elizabeth Elliot, and Elizabeth Elliot says, No man should tell a woman that he loves her until he's willing to get down on one knee and say, will you marry me? Well, we know each other pretty good. I mean, hours of phone conversation, tons of emails, texts, all this. But is it the right thing? And several days, a day or so before she came out, I was talking to the Lord, and I said, is there a special date on which we can get engaged. I'm kind of sentimental that way. I know not everybody cares about all that stuff, but is there a special date? And I realized the day before she was going to fly back um, home from Denver was going to be November 12, 2013. 11, 12, 13. That sounds like a good engagement date to me. Uh, So uh, she came. We had great conversations. I want to make sure that 
you know, things were resolved. We were open about things. We knew each other well. Um, I called her dad and mom for their permission. They said, yes, you may ask. And so seven years ago today, I took her up onto some rocks overlooking Colorado Springs, and I said, you know, I'm going on this trip to Mexico, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I just want you to know that I love you. And then I got down on one knee and I said, will you marry me? And after she got through the shock, she said, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they all lived happily ever after. Except, well, when you're trying to bring two cultures together, it's tough. Okay? It's really hard. We planned our date, our wedding date for June 28, 2014 almost seven years after we'd first met. But I'll tell you what, I still wasn't clear on the whole concept of a church wedding. That didn't, that didn't make sense to me. That's not how I was raised. In my mind, it's two families getting together and your church comes together and celebrates with you. And so all of a sudden, we started facing these things about what's allowable in a wedding and what's not allowable. In, in my background, we get the tux, we have the organ music, because that sets a really reverential tone. Um, we have uh, the videographer, the special music, everything. And all of a sudden, all these things are a problem. I wasn't even sure if the wedding was going to go off, or if we were just going to go off by ourselves. <laughs> there was this tension, and, and I didn't know what to do with it, because... I didn't want to be rebellious towards Shippensburg, but I couldn't figure out what the big deal was. And so a week or two before our wedding, I found myself in a room with about 10 or 12 brothers, one of those brothers' meetings I heard about on the phone. And I was, I was asking, I was, the best that I knew how was to lay out all the things that would be different from a typical Shippensburg wedding and to ask them not to rubber stamp it, but to wish us well. And, and there were things that I compromised on, I gave up, I, you know, no tux, no organ. Um, but then there were some other things that, that Heather gave on. You know, we had uh, video, some of that was for live streaming for people that couldn't be there. Uh, we had special music at the reception, not at the, at the wedding. I mean, we had special music, but not instrumental music. Um, and so... Pastor Harvey asked Heather, because of all the struggles, asked her to remove her membership so that it wouldn't be a church wedding. I, I couldn't figure it out, but I thought, well, okay, fine. I, I mean, I'm just doing the best I know how. I'm trying to be submissive, but this is, this is hard. And I'm sharing this with you. I don't want you to take this story and use it to justify going off the beam, going out from under authority, doing things you're not supposed to, okay? This is not the point of the, the story at all. I'm, I'm expressing to you my struggles because things radically changed for me after I got married. I mean, they were changing radically leading up to marriage. But you know, one of the things that happened was because we tried to keep as good a relations as possible, when we ended up moving to Shippensburg? I mean, who would ever have thought of that? We, we moved to Penns Creek, where my job was, for the first three years of our marriage, and that was, that was great. But then Heather's sister and husband decided to go to Ireland, and they asked us to house sit for them, which, incidentally, their house is right behind Shippensburg Christian Fellowship. Hmm, wonder where we'll go to church. <sighs> and so we went, and we decided that we would attend some sister churches, one month each, to get a feel for the culture of each. We went to St. Thomas, we went to Chambersburg, and then we went to Shippensburg, and we made our decision. And I told people before that, you know, uh, 90% likely we'll probably end up at Shippensburg because that's where Heather's parents are, and it's close proximity to our to house that we're in. Um, and so that's where we ended up. And a year and a half ago, I find myself standing up in front of the church asking for membership. Now, isn't that ironic? And today, my wife is a member again, and I'm a member at Shippensburg Christian Fellowship, me. I mean, just shake your head and uh, try to clear your brain. Uh, 
going from thinking that here is a people that are very unreasonable to being with a people who are sometimes unreasonable, but I love them, okay? <laughs> I've never been part of intentional brotherhood before, and I thought it'd be really hard, and it is, but there's a lot of great things about it. And it really has to do with our attitude. And here's what I want to say to you. When you maintain a proper attitude, amazing things can happen. We love our church family. I love my in-laws. Dad Martin is one of my best friends. Oftentimes, two times a week, maybe three times, I'll call him on the way to work. And we'll talk about stuff. I love being with Dad Martin. And a year after we got married or so, I took Dad out to breakfast or to a meal just so I could say to him, thank you for the investment that you made in your daughter. I am the recipient. I am the beneficiary of all that you have poured into her. Isn't that beautiful? And when I look back and I look at the choices that I had, I could have forced the thing and gone ahead. In fact, uh, Dad was, he, he liked me so much that he tried to figure out how, I could, how he could give his blessing for me to proceed without his blessing. And there's no way around it, okay? <laughs> but when I think about the fact that I was willing to go through that pain and that difficulty and see what we have today, it's worth it. It's worth it to be willing to yield to a bigger group and not just your church, but a bigger movement of Anabaptists. It's such a beautiful and wonderful thing. Your success is tied to your submission. And how you relate to authority determines how you rate with eternity. So how can you, let's just bring this down to nuts and bolts. How can you live out this matter of authority and submission practically? I'd like you to think about several applications. One of those is determine right now that you're going to do your best in life to honor authority no matter how unfair they seem, how unreasonable, how uncivil, how unkind. Um, Somebody has noted that wherever Paul addresses masters and servants, parents and children, um, husbands and wives, he always calls the submitters to make the first move. And that's actually really good because if you find yourself in a bad authority situation, that means you can always do something. You can do the right thing, the hard thing, the honorable thing. You're not left without options. We can make it our aim to honor all men, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17. So make that determination now. I also want to encourage you to decide to exercise your authority well with God's help. And How do we do that? You might say, oh, I'm just a young person. I don't really have much authority or any authority. I think you have more than you realize. How many firstborns do we have here? Okay. Are there any onlyborns here? Okay. Um, If you are a firstborn or an older child in your family, you have a unique opportunity, and I would say responsibility, to practice what's called reflective authority. Someone in authority who is doing authority well practices reflective authority. What is that? That is, whoever they are overseeing, they are seeking to bring that person into submission, not to themselves, but to the person they are under. And I think you'll see that in Jesus' life. It's not that he was forcing people or calling them to come submit directly to him. He was calling them to submit to his father. And husbands are challenged to encourage their wives to submit to Christ. And wives are challenged to encourage their children to submit to their father. We reflect to the authority that is over us. And that's how we practice wholesome, good authority. And so you as a young person, if you have any young people in your life, I don't care if you're firstborn or onlyborn or whatever, if you have younger people looking at you, you have the opportunity and responsibility to reflect to the people over you. It's completely appropriate for you to say, do you think dad and mom want us to do that? 
do you think the boss really wants us to be here? Does the teacher want us to do it this way? You see, it's not about you being the boss, but it's about you practicing that reflective authority, encouraging others to come under submission uh, to that authority. So I want to encourage you to, to think about that, to practice that. And thirdly, I want you to realize that if the authorities in your life are being difficult, frustrating, or downright unreasonable, you can always appeal to them respectfully. I realize there's a lot of bad authority out there. There is spiritual abuse. There is parental abuse as far as authority. There, I mean, just some really difficult, bad stuff. And so I'm not minimizing that in the least. And I'm definitely not saying, oh, if you learn to submit well, your life is just going to go, well, you know, great. No, that's not the case. But we're, we're looking at this from the angle of how can I please God? And so if your authority refuses to listen to your appeal, guess what? You still have options. You can go to the ultimate authority. And I've done this different times. The authority in my life is oppressing me or causing me problems. I go to God. God, I need some help. This person that has authority in my life, you've given this authority. I need you to do something, either for me or for him or both of us. (laughs) We have the avenue of appeal. So make the decision to honor authority in your life. Seek to exercise reflective authority well and be willing to appeal to difficult authorities that you are under. This doesn't mean that you're going to get the girl that you want or that your life will be easy or that your parents or your pastor will understand you. But what I am saying is that when you learn to follow well, your life will be well-pleasing and you will be fulfilled and blessed. Successful in the sense that God is well-pleased with you. And so in closing, young people, I want you to do well in life. I want you to succeed to the highest of your potential. I really do. I want you to walk before God with joy and fulfillment. And as audacious as it sounds, I want you to develop a faith that impresses Jesus, that causes him to to commend you. And a large determiner of whether you please God is so directly linked to your attitude toward authority and your attitude toward authorities. And so 10 or 20 years from now, Lord willing, if we get to meet, I think, I'm sure, I'll be able to hear from you the statement, I am doing well. I'm doing well spiritually. I'm doing even better than I was all those years ago. And if you can do that, I believe that your success will largely be tied to your submission. John.